Come on, guys, work your punning magic. Go to heaven, yeah. <laughs> um, I think this is too dark even for me. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my t-shirted post-Memorial Day summer-clad co-hosts, Leah Leibovitz. Because all other days I dress so fine. And Stephanie Button. Oh, hello. Hello. And this week, two fabulous guests. We are going to be talking with Matthew Shurkham, who is an advocate against gay conversion therapy, something that Israel has put in the news for us. And we're going to bring you our other Chicago Live show guest. You already heard the interview with Blair Braverman, the Iditarod competing dog mushing Jew from northern Wisconsin. Now we're sharing the other interview from that show. It's with the host of the Nerdette podcast, Greta Johnson, a real gentleman. A great gentile. A great gentile. Brought her gentilic vibes to yeah. us. But before we get to them, how about a little of us? I want to ask you a question, first of all. Yeah. I behold your, your visage, and yes. I can't help but noticing that it is it is bearded. It is. It is manly. It's scruffy. Is it bearded or is it just, it's, is it in its transition? Have I crossed the threshold from transitional? You're past stubble. Uh, for you, it's a lot. Yeah. For me, this is like two hours of like not paying attention. <laughs> I'd say like something's going on. All right. I think it's been exactly seven days since I've shaved, which is definitely the this longest. Is seven days since, and since our last Harry's ad played. Don't fret, people. Harry's is going to re-enter the picture <laughs> with their razors. Because I think my beard right now is seven days, <laughs> and I'm like full shlomo here. Here's the thing: every three to four years, I think I'll try. I'll try it. I'll see. I'll see what bearded Oppenheimer is like. Because my dad's never had a beard. My grandfather never had a beard. My mom's father had a beard. But on the Oppenheimer lineage, no beards, clean shaven all the way back, all the way back. in The in, men and the women. In Pittsburgh. You have to go back to Germany to find anyone bearded, I think. And so here I am trying it. I just last Tuesday, I didn't feel like shaving. And then Wednesday, I had to get up early for a flight. And then and here I am. And it's just a lot. And also, you may have noticed that an interesting portion of it is white. Yeah. You guys both have the same like white chin area. Because we are like, fathers. I, <laughs> we're part of the patriarchy now. You are truly. <laughs> and I think I've told you guys before that whenever I go more than a couple days without shaving, my children r- rebel. They just like, Dad, we're not going to hug you. We're not going to kiss you. But we're not going to talk to you. So aren't you okay? The, so the kids are not. Well, Rebecca's away at camp. She doesn't know. So here's the plan. The plan is because I can't withstand the pressure from the kids forever. And also because, as Sid put it, well, it looks good, but it ages you 15 years. Do you agree with that? Well, Beth, you don't right? have. Like, yes, we, but for you, it's taking you from 25 to yeah, 40. Like 40. So. Like when we <laughs> saw you at the airport in Chicago, when we all met up, you were like skipping along <laughs> and you literally looked like you were 21 going right. on spring break. Right. So, so like, it, yes, you don't look as like you that said, anymore. You're like one hacky sack away from, <laughs> from front row day Matthews, That's right. right? So here's the plan. The plan is when I pick her back up at Camp Ramad, I will go through this Sunday, at which point I will be, you know, fairly bearded. And she will freak out and be horrible about it and be like, I mean, she won't want to leave anyway. She's always like, four more weeks, four more weeks. I don't want to leave Gambrama. And But she'll be particularly horrible saying, I can't go home with a man who looks like that. She will find some real well, zingers. Luckily, she knows to say that. My plan then is to go home. And for whenever I see you next, the plan is to shave off the beard except for the mustache. That is a smooth move. And see, because really the truth is, if I'm being honest, this is my route to a mustache because you can't grow a mustache by itself. Men and their facial hair, it's such a weird fixation and there's so many just like underlying layers there. I don't care to unpack them. We don't have anything else. That's That's right. We can't do makeup. We don't really do clothes. This is it. Life must be really hard for you. We can only wear one heel size for our shoes before getting, you know, Freddie Mercury. In other news, the only other thing I have for you is last night I heard that you guys were were seeing some movies and I said, well, I'm going to go see a movie and I went to see Stuber. (laughs) <laughs> and let's and just say served you right Stuber was not stupendous it was um, 
Stupid. <laughs> I mean, I like Kumail Nanjani, but it's hard out there for an I would, actor. I would have thought this for like a Dave Bautista movie. This would really be <laughs> wit and wisdom, but okay. A lot of jokes about, about five-star ratings. Let's put it that way. What's up with you, Stephanie? So I did go to a movie premiere last night. I don't know if you guys re- you guys remember, hopefully in this room, but our listeners, about two years ago, we had this amazing guy, H. Allen Scott, oh, on the podcast. Love he, H. Allen was raised Mormon. He came out. He got cancer. He ended up converting to Judaism. He had this amazing story. And he came on the show to talk about it. We had so much fun with him. And his documentary film crew filmed him on our show. Yeah. So what we didn't really say at the time was they were actually cameras in the studio, which was, you know, this was episode 89, May 2017. We were still pod babies at the time. We hadn't pod, we didn't hatch from our pods yet. The pod, yeah. So last night I went to a screening of the film, Latter-day Jew by Aliza Rosen, the filmmaker who was here in the studio with us. And I have and to say- we in the film? We are in the film. Really? In like ah. the first few minutes, he explains himself really quickly. He's like, this is my story. And then you're like- our Jewish guest this week is H. Allen Scott. He like, and it's me doing the introduction <laughs> and it's like sitting right here. And I was just like, I completely have forgotten that they had been in the room at the time that had was so such an unusual experience. And I was like, that's me. I'm there. I have a speaking part. Get me on IMDb. But anyway, the movie is amazing. And it's actually going to be at the San Francisco Jewish Film Festival. It's hitting the circuit. The movie is amazing. H. Allen is incredible. But the, the film is just like, it's deep and profound and funny. It has all of these things. There's an amazing through line about a Mormon couple who also converted to Judaism here in New York. It's just this amazing thing. There are three thing. Jewish podcast hosts who are really funny and just yes, worth the yes, price of admission. for sure. I am so excited to see this movie. Oh, so, so what you're saying is better than Stuber. Better than Stuber. You guys can keep <laughs> you guys can keep tabs on what's going on with them at latterdayjew.com. It's probably coming to a Jewish film festival near you. Liel. I don't want to talk about a film. I want to talk about a concert. So as listeners of the yeah. show know, uh, on July 4th, I took my daughter to the Toby Keith concert. Which was wait, terrific. Wait, you took you a Toby Keith concert? I hadn't heard anything about you this. You have not? <laughs> and it's a Toby Keith concert on July 4th. The number of American flags <laughs> present was like hysterical. There were people like wearing American flags. It's like American flags, like everything. It was great. The story, however, is not the Toby Keith concert because we walk uh, in and there is a warm-up act. And it's these two young women called the Sisterhood Band. And they're really freaking great. They're wearing thigh-high boots. They're wearing, like, cow-high jackets, Stetson hats, like, the whole thing. And they're playing great freaking country music. And in between the songs, they have this great banter. And they go, like, man, you know, and these, like, very kind of weird accents. Like, you know, like, just this time last year, just playing together on the porch. (laughs) Just two friends making the music they love. And here we are opening Toby Keith. Can you believe it? They're Swedish. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) What I'm saying is they're half Israeli, half (laughs) Swedish. And and Lily's transfixed because, like, here are these two young women, like, rocking out this big stadium. And I'm getting completely into the story. I'm like, oh my God, like this time last year, they probably just two waitresses like serving grits at some <laughs> greasy spoon diner in Knoxville. And here they are, hard work and determination, man. <laughs> this is what the American dream's all about. So they're playing their set. Lily is like in seventh heaven. And they say like, oh, you know, after the concert, <laughs> we'll be over by the concession stand. Come over and uh, meet us and would like to meet the new fans. And Lily's like, that no, we have to go. Like Posters, these women, t-shirts. These women are awesome. So we go to the merch Beer stand. cozies. We buy, we, buy, we buy a t-shirt. We're like, we're super into it. They come out. They are as country as, they, they look and sound and act like the sort of women who like use Jack Daniels instead of Listerine. Like totally... <laughs> 
country. <laughs> and like they hug Lily. They're like, oh, sugar, sweetheart. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I'm so into it. So we go back to our, to our seat to wait for Toby Keith to come on. And Lily's like, oh, who are these amazing women? Like, what else do we know about them? It's like, okay, let's, you know, we have a couple of minutes. Let's pull up the phone, go on Wikipedia. Go ask Siri. One of one of these women, and again, great musicians, right? A lot of fun. She's Swiss. Love them. One of them is the daughter of a very famous country music producer who's been doing this since she was eleven. The other is the daughter of Rod Stewart, who grew up in a Bel Air mansion, and this time last year was probably having three butlers serve her, you know, grits on a literal silver platter. Was the mansion in Los Angeles or in London? It was probably. Simultaneous mansions, or was it in Stade, Switzerland? <laughs> but you know what? It made me, it made me kind of love America a little bit even more because, like, there's no end to who you could be. You could go from Bel Air to like a diner in Knoxville. Anyone can if be you country. To. Anyone can be country. Yeehaw! Let's go from there to uh, a little news of the Jews story in uh, California. Stephanie, what do we have here in, in Bel Air? Very relevant to Bel Air. There is a bill in California. Someone tell Rod Stewart's daughter that is going to. Bar landlords and condo associations from prohibiting people from putting up mezuzahs. And so basically, it's technically the display of religious items, but there's only so many religious items that are displayed on doors and door frames. I wonder if the people, if these condo associations were banning like Christmas wreaths. Maybe. Maybe, but it seems like it was for they anti-Semitic. They found one just to say like, no, we hate all well, of it religion. Wasn't about Jews. It, has, it has the support of Catholic and Hindu groups, but it basically has been named the mezuzah bill. The mezuzah bill sounds like the greatest like Edward Albee play ever. But basically what happened was that there were Jewish people trying to put mezuzahs up and they were like, the condo association says religious items of a certain size are prohibited from being affixed to ones to thy doorposts. <laughs> and everyone was like, well, that feels really targeted. So now this is moving through state legislature according to JTA. <laughs> I see your condo association. We're not banning exactly Jewish ritual slaughter. We're just saying that if it uses a knife and you say Hebrew prayers over well, Jewish it. Jewish and Muslim usually actually, right? right? Like right. it's these weird things that target very specific communities. Have you guys ever been watching a like a TV show and you notice that the mezuzah on the door of characters who aren't Jewish, that they've been shooting somewhere in Los Angeles and they right. didn't realize. I've seen this any number of times. If like, you st- who has a nice house? Oh, yeah. If I, you start looking leaves. for like like stuff set in the 90210 type vicinity on TV, you will see random Gentile people like knocking on doors of their lovers and there's a mezuzah right there. They just, they just- I would like to be like the script coordinator, the script supervisor who's like, excuse me, there is a mezuzah. Is this character halakhically Jewish? Do we, do we think that they would have a mezuzah? We have to airbrush it up. As someone who has a mezuzah on their door, and doesn't like it because it's from the previous tenant and it's not mine. And now I have 17. And as we know, I don't know what like the law is about pulling them down. I think you're supposed to leave them up, right? Aren't but like, you I want to replace it with well, mine. We, so we talked about this one. I think the tradition is if you think you're giving the apartment or the house over to a Jew, you leave it up for them. But if you think you're giving it to a Gentile, there are rabbis who say don't because it might get abused or mistreated. So you should take it down and take it. Like by people who talk badly about them on the on the radio. Exactly. By it's people. just ugly. It's like, a, it's like a burnt orange. Well, now that you have 17, yeah, you have like, one on your front door. I want to have, I know, I have so many. The next move yeah. is every doorway within the house. 
I have some news from Boca Raton, Florida. Ooh. This is an unlikely place for the story to come out of, but it's a little bit horrifying. So basically, a parent emails the principal of Spanish River High School, which is in Boca Raton, and she says, what does the school teach about the Holocaust? I'm just curious, like, what is on the, the curriculum? And he's like, we have a... <laughs> I, love, I love that email yeah. already. <laughs> Excuse me, two questions. <laughs> no, it was actually, she wanted to make sure it was being, being made a priority. That's a priority, <laughs> right? Is this a nut-free zone, and what do you teach about the Holocaust? <laughs> so basically, she gets an email from the principal, William Latson, who, who says we have, quote, a variety of activities. And she's like, great. <laughs> and then he says, lessons are actually, quote, not forced upon individuals as we all have the same rights, but not all the same beliefs. And this woman followed up being what? like, the Holocaust is a factual historical event. It is not a right or belief. And he... <laughs> Principal Latson. According to the Palm Beach Post says, Drumroll, please. Not everyone believes the Holocaust happened. And you have your thoughts, but we are a public school and not all of our parents have the same beliefs. It's like, first of all, who in Boca is saying the Holocaust didn't happen? But anyway, this guy is, he's like, I have to be politically neutral. We can't, like, this is insane. This is insanity. I have to be neutral as regards to facts. Some people, right? Schools cannot be Don't even get him forcing, started on the Armenian genocide. Right. Schools cannot be saying that a triangle has... Uh, but he keeps going like he doubles down a bajillion times. He says, I can't say the Holocaust is a factual historical event because I'm not in a position to do so as a school district employee. What is happening? There's so many problems here, right? It's like, number one, <laughs> he doesn't know if the Holocaust happened or not. Number two, he doesn't think his job as an educator is to actually teach kids what happened. It's to create some sort of neutral space for people to have food fights. It's really disturbing, right? So since this story has come out, these emails were actually from April of last year. I'm not sure what caused them to come out now, but he's been removed. They just said they were aware of his remarks, blah, blah, blah. They made him go to the Holocaust Museum oh. <laughs> in D.C. <laughs> but yeah, he's not there anymore. So... I don't know. I mean, it's one of those weird things because I'm always I'm always worried of of the perception of like you piss off the Jews and then you lose your job. I know that's not what happened here, but there is a part of me that's just like, oh, we shouldn't stand up for ourselves because then we'll seem pushy. Yes, I think that is exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. Is that is that this is how this leads to the survival of our people, right? That, that that's, mentality. That's exactly how it happens. But here's the thing: if we start thinking about accurate Holocaust education as a Jewish right, then we've missed the boat as well. This is children learning European history accurately. And, and American history. And American history and world history. And I would be worried if my kids were in a school where they were teaching the history of genocide and they didn't mention the Armenian genocide or the Khmer Rouge or whatever. I like to think I'd be one of the parents querying what's on the curricula. I don't have the time to if, do if that. If they're getting lunch, we're good. Yeah. But I'm pretty interested that they're learning slavery accurately and that yeah, they're learning true. evolution accurately. And I mean, Holocaust is a biggie. And look, I'm glad that Mama Shapiro was on the front lines dealing with that. Leo, what's going on in Israel? Yeah, redeem America. Tell us bad things about Israel. So, Stephanie, this is not a story for you. Mark, it is a story for you. Is it about beards? It is about the other thing close to Mark and, and my heart. I will read the headline from the JTA. As it is, I think, one of the finest ever published. All dogs are bad and their owners accursed. Israeli cities rabbi rules. More than a dozen rabbis from the city of El-Ad near Tel Aviv issued an edict, a psak halacha, if you will, declaring all dogs bad and warning <laughs> residents that keeping them will make them accursed. The edict, dated June 14th, contained the signatures of all these rabbis in the city of 46,000 residents. Uh, and uh, here is the edict. We have heard and have seen that lately a serious phenomenon has spread in our city in which young boys and children walk around publicly, publicly, publicly. Mark, with dogs. No, <laughs> This is strictly forbidden, as explained in the Talmud and by the Rambam. 
Anyone raising a dog is accursed, and especially in our city, where many women and children are afraid of dogs. Albeit, probably not the children walking, walking the dogs, dogs or their mothers. Like, uh, this is really one of the greatest stories ever told. First of all, I haven't done the research, but does the Talmud say all dogs are bad? Oh, of, of course. If you read, uh, you know, uh, tractate Klav Lav, you, you hear there the story of of you know Rabbi Yossi, Snoopy Ben and Fido, uh, and Rabbi Ben Darsha Ben Zama, who were sitting in Brayback and asking that great Talmudic question who's a good boy <laughs> who's a good boy a good we'll never boy. find out Kalev Tov Kalev Tov I remember now, that from Hebrew school now if they were saying that all little tiny yappy dogs uh, whose owners dress them up in Scottish tartans are bad that would be one thing that would be one thing but all dogs all dogs Archie Archie Diggles von Puchenstein Oppenheimer question yes are the feral cats that wander Israel bad they're fine no I, I think the rabbis are taking a side I think this is a this is a an anti Meowschwitz pro dog deportation. What would the dog concentration camp be called? What would the the, the this is so disturbing the canine version of Meowschwitz be when That's the cats get diverted to Meowschwitz? Do the dogs get diverted to Barkenau? <laughs> there we go. Thank I think you. I've drawn my Thank line. You. I think this is where my line is, and you have passed it, guys. And... July third. Meowschwitz Barkenau. Bar- it's a too complex one for cats. Now is a good time to say that we are about to hit our four year, four year anniversary. <laughs> and so as, we will mark it with Barkanow. This is as far as we've come oh, in Lordy. four years. So on a normal week, rabbis decreeing that all dogs are bad and their owners are accursed would have been the untoppable story out of Israel. This week, however, uh, there is, seems to be a plethora, uh, no short supply of people saying stupid shit in Israel. And uh, top among them is Israel's newly elected minister of education, Rafi Peretz, who is a rabbi and a religious educator, and who, when asked on a TV interview how he feels about gay conversion therapy, says he sort of supports it. And so we thought this was a great opportunity to air an interview that we recorded earlier this summer before this controversy broke with Matthew Sherkin. Have a listen. What's funny is, I so I know the unorthodox, but it's interesting. Is like that can mean so much. The name in itself. Mm-hmm. Do you guys want to share, like, in a sentence, what it means to you? Wow, it's turning starting this interview right. by I haven't even introduced <laughs> him yet. He's asking this question. Well, um, a ninja move. I think it means the idea that we are just a little bit irreverent, um, and there's there's orthodox in there, right? There's a respect, but an irreverence. Um, you know, and sort of like a nice fun riff on that, which is considered sacred. Yeah. So, you know, a day after tomorrow is the, the yurt site of, of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And this, I just wrote about him. So he's, you know, top of my mind. And this one thing that I really love about him is all these divisions between we're Orthodox Jews, no conservative Jews, no reformed Jews. No, I'm a religious Jew. I'm a secular Jew. Those are all completely made up. There are no such things. We're all Jews. It doesn't matter. We're all Jews and we're all welcome here just the way we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, none of us are perfect, and all of us are in it together. It's great. I love it. We are here with Matthew Shurka. He is a founder of Born Perfect, an organization that works to end gay conversion therapy through national legislation. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you for having me. This is particularly exciting for me um, because we went to high school together. Yeah. <laughs> in Great Neck. We went to Great Neck North High School. I feel so left out right now. Yes. Um, Great Neck is on Long Island, Liel. It's the suburbs of New York. So if I, you know, you were a year younger than I was. Yeah. And the thing I remember about you from high school was I didn't, I didn't particularly, we didn't know each other necessarily personally, but you were the kid that threw the parties. 
Oh, God. Every weekend, people would be like, we're going to Matt Sherka's house. <laughs> I think I went to one, and it was like these wild parties, and everyone would just like be like, on Monday, did you hear what happened this weekend at Matt Sherka's house? Yeah, I, I guess I'm notorious yeah. <laughs> for this. Um, I mean, even I, all the way back in Herzliya, heard about your party. <laughs> like, man, one day we go to Matt Sherka's house. Very good. I would not be surprised. I mean, you know, Jewish geography, it's totally possible. <laughs> But you actually were having a completely different experience. Yeah, who I was being to the world and who I was within were two different people. And yeah, of course, I love a good party. And throwing a great party for me was a tool. I knew from a really, basically middle school, I understood, not willing to admit it to myself, but understood that I was growing into a gay man. I was a gay boy, 13 years old. Bar mitzvah's complete. Things are getting really clear. And as much as I liked to deny my sexuality, it was really coming into high school and seeing the senior boys chase the freshman girls and like the, how sexuality just became so strong, like stepping into ninth grade and I did not relate to it. I was like, oh my God, the senior boys. <laughs> you know, yeah. So, you know, I just, and that's, that scared me. And throwing a big party was my way of making friends. So it was like this combination of how do I just fit in, but also stand out in a way that you would not suspect otherwise. Sort of a hiding in plain sight. Exactly. And I thought I was really smart for doing that. <laughs> I mean, I had no idea. I mean, You were the party guy. It got me in trouble in many ways, but I, I thought I was being smart. At first, it started off with like 10, 15 kids, specifically kids in my grade. My parents were really lenient with me. They, our house rule was you have no curfew. You can do anything you want as long as you don't do drugs and alcohol and you tell us the truth about everything. It was sort of like we were going to put the trust first rather than gaining it. Like we trust you. You're our kid. And so I played along those rules until a point. <laughs> but on a typical Saturday night, my parents were always out in the city or going to Broadway shows. And for them coming home on a Saturday night, two, three in the morning was normal. So I had a lot of room to get away with a lot of things. And what started with like 10 to 15 kids then became 50 kids, then became 100 kids. And I think the really the first big one were multiple grades or, you know, Jewish geography. Kids from other high schools would come was sophomore year Battle of the Classes. Oh, yeah. Which is this big Great Nick North event, which basically, like, if you went to any Jewish sleepaway camp, it's like color war. But instead of the color teams, it's the grades compete against each other based on different activities, sports, and there's a dance. And that year, the sophomores, I, as you can imagine, side note, the seniors usually win just because they're bigger and everything. But the sophomore years, and that was my year, and I was in the Battle of the Classes, won the dance. And it was just like big, it was a big deal. And I had like 300 people at my parents' house. <laughs> at, to celebrate the win. To, to <laughs> celebrate the win and, like, and got away with it. Somehow I like got everyone out. Uh, I knew my house well. Um, you know, this is like a waterfront property. And I just like took advantage of that. And I was secretly hooking up with boys, other boys that were closeted in school but as long as you believed I was getting all these girls, whether that was true or not, didn't matter. As long as that perception was there, that was just like, just thank God the party went well and everyone thinks what they think. This sounds exhausting. It's so exhausting. I didn't even know how exhausting it was because in my 16-year-old, 15-year-old head, this was life. This is what I had to do in like, in a way, this is like survival 
in such a ridiculous form, but it really was. But let me ask you this. So we're not talking here, you know, growing up in the 60s or 70s, right? We're, we're talking a later date in which pride is a thing, the culture is rapidly shifting. Was there ever a time in which you said to yourself, you know what, maybe I'm just going to go out on a limb here? Or were your circumstances such that you said, like, this is not even an option for me? It's a great question. You know, it was early 2000s. There were not many gay characters on TV yet. I remember secretly watching Queer as Folk, and that was like such a thrill to see just the relationships of men. I don't know if either of you are familiar with the show, but that was like such a, that just changed cine- a TV for so, for so many reasons. But, you know, my parents were not very religious. We're, we're culturally conservative Jews, you know, Shabbat dinner every single Friday. Like that was a thing I could not miss, but we didn't really go to synagogue much. So there was this openness in my home. But I would say the thing that scared me was that my father was this, He's an Israeli-Iranian Jew, classic American dream story, $100 in his pocket, was a truck driver who then became a cab driver and did really well in the gasoline business and then became entered real estate. And his whole thing was about macho, hustler-type personality, you know, like in sort of in the same school of friends of like of Trump, where really the real estate business is a hustle mentality. It's not really about your education as long as you know how to negotiate and get a good real estate deal. And that's who was raising me. And my mom was like the opposite, like the, the sweetest Ashkenazi woman you've ever met who like learned how to add schug to her matzo ball soup. <laughs> so what happens <laughs> um, when you come out to your father? I came out to my father because I got beat up in high school. It was a pretty big event I think, for our high school because this is great, Nick. Not a lot of crimes or anything of that nature happen. And I got blown to the face by two guys it was specifically over one of my parties because I purposely was not inviting these two boys who were seen as the high school bullies. Even though they were very popular, it was that they had the type of popularity where you want to make sure you're their friend so you don't get Yeah, they were get, the bad boys. Yeah, you don't get like, hit by them too. And so because I didn't have a relationship to them, my whole thing was just to keep them out of the whole situation, which was actually the reason they attacked me because basically the whole entire school would come to these parties and they were the two that were known they could not be there. And I sort of like, you know, shot myself in the foot there. But having been like hospitalized from being attacked by two boys, not specifically for being gay, but that scared me. And I really knew, felt that my life was in danger. And if anyone knew that I was, had ongoing relationships with other boys at school, I really felt that my life was threatened. And that was what prompted me to come out to my dad, definitely the harder parent to come out to, but really just seeking his support. No, I needed to know he was gonna support me as his gay son. And this moment we had was it was really incredible. He told me that he loved me no matter what. I had you know, tears coming down my face, your, your classic coming out story. And I, I really did think I was over the big hurdle. But literally the next day, my father had his own panic of what it meant that his only son is on his way to coming out. And he, you know, and that can mean so many things, but he started searching in the New York City area for therapists for different opinions. My father had never heard of conversion therapy, and he did meet a therapist. Let's let's take a moment for for sure. those listeners who may be confused. When you say conversion therapy, what what do you mean? What is it? Good. No, thank you. So conversion therapy, there's no actual practice called conversion therapy. It's an umbrella term that we use and they use in the industry. It is whenever a doctor or psychotherapist or really anyone, it can be a rabbi or a priest, is attempting to change another person's sexual orientation 
gender identity or gender expression. So basically to de-gay you. Yeah, if, or gay, if gay to straight is right. the more commonly used mm-hmm. terminology. But yeah, and the whole hope was that my when my father met this therapist and saw there was an opportunity that there would be a chance that his son would not be gay and that maybe this whole thing is psychological or whatever the reason is, there was an opportunity to cure me. And so my father presented this to me and, you know, that question I always get was, was I a willing participant? One, I was scared. I was so scared for my own life that I was wanted to do anything to make sure that my life was not in danger. And my father advocated that my life would be so horrible as an openly gay man. And he listed all the things that gay people or LGBTQ people go through in this in our society. And instead of figuring that out, the solution was you can cure it. And that's exactly what the therapist vouched for and told my father. And so in 2004, as an 11th grade, it was, the, it was like fall of my 11th grade year, in Greenneck, I began conversion therapy. And I'll just make this point right away, is that because I was inexperienced sexually with the same sex, and this is how they like evaluate me, how you know how hard is it or how long is it going to take They could me still to... save you. Yeah, You exactly. haven't tasted the forbidden fruit yet. <laughs> <laughs> totally. They believed that I could start to see my heterosexuality come back within six weeks based on my inexperience. Of... Side effects may include. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly. crazy. That's, yeah. That seems crazy to me. But if you are experiencing it at the time, you're like, okay, I'll try it. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I love and trusted my father. I look up to my dad. My father's the breadwinner in our family. He created our whole community. And so I trusted him. I just trusted him. And there was a licensed professional involved. I would not believe it. I, and this is really clear. I would not believe it if it was a pray the gay away, which I know was, is popular within that culture of conversion therapy. I really wanted to know, like, I want to feel this. I want to know I'm attracted to women the way I feel attracted to boys. This is so insane to me that, that I really want to slow things down here. So you go, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. day one, you know, welcome yeah. introductions. Then what? What is the first step in this So-called therapy. Yeah, so day one is, it looks like therapy. You know, it was one-on-one, sitting with a therapist in a therapist's office, how you, you know, do therapy if you've ever been in therapy before. And we evaluated my situation, and their belief is that anything LGBTQ is caused from childhood traumas, and that there's actually no such thing as homosexuality, and everyone is innately heterosexual. And you just got off track because something happened, and you didn't treat or heal the trauma you went through. So we're going to do that now. <laughs> we're going to heal the trauma. And that's what we looked at. And and in six weeks, we'll give you a Bud Light and you'll be all, <laughs> you'll be okay. Not I'll be, a Bud Light, a Bud Heavy. Right. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Steph. <laughs> so when, uh, how long did you do this for? So it was a total of five years from age 16 to 21 um, that I was in that treatment. And of course, it wasn't always working. And so... I ended up doing the treatment in four different states by four different therapists. I was moved around. And, and I during did, that that time, are, are you seeing people? Are you dating? Are you feeling horribly guilty for yes. still having natural? So as you can imagine, like a lot happens in five years. So I'll give you like the shorter down version. In the beginning, we had to evaluate how I got this way. How did I get gay? And I had to look for my childhood traumas. And luckily for me, there really was none. I, I was really fortunate that I had a really great upbringing. You know, of course I had like my nicks and knacks with my mom and dad, but nothing really specific that I can point out. And so they diagnosed me, well, you have two older sisters, you're much closer to your mom, you're spending way, you have too many female role models. 
And they wanted me to understand that men are my peers and not women. And so I need to spend as much time with my father and the other male figures at home. Meanwhile, stay as away from all the females in my life. And what that actually turned into was me not being allowed to speak to my mom and sisters for three years. And that was just the first three years of my conversion therapy. And so I played this role of going to school every day, purposely avoiding all females, learning and training myself how to adjust or relate to the boys around me. So throwing more parties, spending more time with them on the weekends. Like I was actually targeting specific boys in my grade to become friends with as a way to train myself in my masculinity. So the way to quote unquote cure someone from being gay is to say like you should spend a lot of time with boys. Yeah. That sounds <laughs> the like most macho solid. boys you can find. <laughs> I mean, I did meet my first boyfriend that way. So <laughs> So at what point do you realize that this was a thing that you, you know, you didn't have all the facts about what was going on with these with these therapists. And when did you realize that this was something really deeply problematic that they were doing? I think it was after year three. I was 19 going on 20. And it wasn't really clear what you saw out there. Because like when you did an AOL search or a Google search, like things came up that people were doing conversion therapy. It was more common than people thought. So I, it wasn't like an obvious, this doesn't work. What made it clear to me that there was not something working here was there was patterns that I was seeing. I wanted to meet someone who actually became straight. And I would ask the therapist that I were working with, like, introduce me, I would love to meet one. And they would, they would introduce me to a male who married and has a wife and has kids. And I would have this one-on-one -on -one conversation with them and how it worked, blah, blah, blah. And then they would explain how, well, wait a second, the, the feelings never go away. I'm Like, I still feel attracted to men. It's maybe less but it's something you're gonna to have to work on your whole life. And that was like the most eye-opening moment for me that there's actually, it's not, there's no curing process that's actually gonna happen. You're just learning how to maintain it. And so you can have this quote unquote normal life that mm -hmm. is viewed, you wanna call it Jewish life or just life in general, which is a wife and kids from a male's point of view. And so tell us about your organization. After leaving conversion therapy for five years and overcoming and you know getting to a great place where I came out again, I made a YouTube video that went viral. Hi everyone, my name is Matthew, I'm 24 years old from New York City, and I'm here today to let you guys know that it does get better. So last week in recent news, Governor Jerry Brown of California passed a ban against reparative therapy for minors. Ended up on the morning news the next day without my intention. Uh, it was I made the video for a charity that takes like 14 days to process, but within 24 hours it was on the news. and. That's what launched my story. Um, and I had the largest organizations reach out to me, including like NBC and Dateline and all asking questions about my conversion therapy experience. And that's when I began to advocate with the National Center for Lesbian Rights, which is an illegal organization in San Francisco that was started to, they work on all issues. And they specifically were starting to work on the conversion therapy laws. And so I began working with them directly. And in 2014, we created a campaign called Born Perfect. And we've been literally drafting and introducing all the legislation in the country and also making sure that the media was talking about it as much as possible. So if you fast forward to today, 18 states and 52 cities have passed the laws that we've modeled and, and worked on nationwide. We worked on two Hollywood films. One was an indie film with Chloe Moretz called The Miseducation of Cameron Post, which was the grand jury prize winner of Sundance. And then we did a Nicole Kidman movie called Boy Erased. Right. We've literally 
watch the entire landscape on this issue shift. And with you know, with the Trump administration coming in and all the policies that have either halted or gone backwards regarding the LGBT movement, we have somehow been able to keep passing bill after bill. It's you know almost we're passing a new law almost one one per month. And how does your father feel about this journey that your life has taken? Um, good question. <laughs> um, I didn't talk to him for about five years, and I have a great relationship today. I think any conversion therapy survivor, the hardest thing for them to swallow is that their parents never wanted to lose them. They were really hoping they were going to succeed in the therapy, and that my act, my father is in his own way showing me love, even though it was something so harmful. And we were able to move past that. He understands that this is not changing because it's who I am. And, and we have built our father some relationship on those values. He's, yeah, and you're, I think you're right to say, now that you said this, but he has this attitude of like, okay, you're gay, we get it. Why do you have to be an advocate now? Right. <laughs> Can you just do it more quietly? Yeah. <laughs> what happens is, what about real estate? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's more of our back and forth. But every conversation we can end, we can end it with like, okay, so what are we eating? And I get the joy of being with my dad. That sounds very Jewish. So how do we learn more <laughs> about Born Perfect and get involved? Go to bornperfect.org, sign up for our email newsletter. Also check us out on Instagram, at Born Perfect. Um, we're doing awesome things. We did so much for World Pride, had some great collaborations. Um, we have so much more work to do. We'd love people to join us. Before we let you go, I just want to know what you tell the version of yourself in high school who is throwing all those parties and trying to sort of fit in in so many different ways. What advice would you give him based on everything you've learned in the intervening years? Oh God. Um, I think I would tell myself that you're not wrong about who you are. Like you, you are very clear about who you are from day one. Um, and I say that only because I went through 10 years of, partying, conversion therapy, undoing conversion therapy to get back to who I was at 16. It was like, you actually knew exactly what you wanted to do with your life. All my aspirations were the same. My dreams were the same. And so if someone like whispered in my ear, like, you got this, you don't need to doubt anything, like live your life. It's going to be great. I think that would have been like the best thing ever. Well, the nice thing is you actually have the chance you do that now. Yeah, I do. I do do that now. Um, I, but yes, I think I would love any high schooler who's maybe questioning themselves now to know that your thoughts and feelings are valid and you don't, there's, there, you, like, you actually know. And whatever you got to work out with your, either your community, your parents, like you'll work it out, but you know who you are. Matthew Shurka, thank you so much for being on Unorthodox. It's thank so you. great to catch up again. Thank you. This was great. That was our interview with Matthew Shurka. You can find out more at bornperfect.org. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. 
Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I'll be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Friends, it's summertime, and you know what that means. You're catching up on your unorthodox episode, on your long, long drives, and you're looking forward to that season of renewal just around the corner. No, I'm not talking about Yom Kippur exactly. I'm talking about the Yom Kippur episode of Unorthodox. For yet another year, we will be discussing apologies, atonement, forgiveness, all the things that make the season of repentance so repentanceful for you and yours. We need your help for that episode. Do you have a special story of a time you forgave or were forgiven of something you still wish you could atone for, of an old relationship that was mended or repaired at some point. We're looking for your narratives for the Yom Kippur season. Please call us at 914-570-4869 or write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com and let us know what your story is. We just might use it on the air. A couple weeks ago, you heard our interview with Blair Braverman, who was our Jew of the Week at our really exciting Chicago live show. We had another interview that week. It was with our Gentile of the Week, Greta Johnson. She hosts the Nerdette podcast produced by WBEZ Chicago, and she was a Gentile Suprema at our Chicago live show. Have a listen to our interview with Greta Johnson. Hi, guys. This is super exciting. Have you ever been a Gentile of the Week before? I have never been Gentile of the Week. Actually, it's funny. I was telling my mom about how honored I was. And then later on, she was like, so are you excited to be Gentile of the Month? And I was like, Mom, it's just of the week. Oh, well, we'll see about that. She's like, I, mean, I think you're oh, good like enough it. to be of the month, she says. That's like really... <laughs> you that tell mom. your mom you're Gentile of the Year, we'll back you up. I mean, we'll... Okay, okay, cool. We, we, I'm glad to hear that. I really your... appreciate it. Thank so you. it must be nice for you to come on here tonight and not have to interview anyone and to sort of like just get to sit there and have fun. It's really interesting. You know, I was thinking about it as I was getting ready this afternoon. It was like, I don't have any prep. I don't have any note cards. This is the first time I've ever done a live event where I haven't been the person worried about keeping time and asking all the questions. It's pretty awesome. So I want to ask a, a question that pertains to, to this. It, yeah. On a recent episode, uh, we all have your show, but on a recent episode, 
you talk to the two lead actresses in the movie Booksmart. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it was very evident that your love for these two young women was sort of like boundless. Yeah. You got really excited. So sometimes when you talk to people, do you ever get emotionally either really, really, really up or really, really, really down? I mean, I think the thing I really love about Nerdette is essentially it's just a place to be like unabashedly enthusiastic about whatever it is that you're into. And as the host of a show like that, I feel like then I just get to do that with my guests. And I think in general, I try to keep that a pretty like positive, upbeat, like fun loving space. Uh, just because like in my other job, I'm listening to the news. And, you know, like, that contrast can be pretty intense. I try to opt out of that as much as I can. And a movie, like, how many of you have seen Booksmart? Like, oh my God. I was so, like, if I had seen a movie like that when I was 17, I have no idea what kind of person I would be today. Like, it was that freaking good. And so to be able to talk to the two stars of it and just be like, hey, you're awesome, is like such a treat. Which is so funny because they're like 17. Oh, yeah. Totally. Well, they're in their like <laughs> mid-20s. Mid-20s like in the movie they play, 30, yeah. But yeah, they play 17-year-olds. So was it funny for them, for you as like a grown person to be like, I love you guys. Hello, children. <laughs> you're amazing. Yeah, I mean, normally, I feel like normally we don't interview people who are younger than I am. So that was kind of funny. And to just be like, I am so excited for your career, you know? It's like, they're in movies. They're doing great. I've always felt, and I've listened to a lot of episodes of your show, I've always felt that you're pretty committed to the idea of nerdette. And I've always wanted to ask you, is a nerdette different from a nerd? What is going on with yeah, you? Yeah, that yeah. word choice, right? Well, so technically, as a word nerd, nerdette isn't actually the feminine, it's the diminutive. Okay. Right? So everybody's a little nerdy about something. That said, we did like that it kind of had a feminine ring to it, and... When co-founder Trisha Bobita and I started Nerdette, it was shortly after an article had been written for this sort of like audio nerd website called Transom. Mm -hmm. And this woman named Julie Shapiro had written an article about women-hosted podcasts. And at the time, this was about six and a half years ago, she just went through the list of the top 100 podcasts in iTunes and counted how many of them were hosted by men versus women. And at the time, I think it was 71 were hosted by men. And then some of them had co-hosts, and then the rest were by women. And a lot of those were already radio shows, right? Like, think about Fresh Air with Terry Gross or On the Media with Brooke Gladstone you know, these shows that have been around for like decades and decades. And so she, her article was really all about the fact that we just needed more female voices out there, just like a bigger variety of female voices. And that was what really inspired us to get started was the idea that there wasn't really a show talking about pop culture and being genuinely enthusiastic that was led by women. And so we were like, okay, well then let's just make it. So since you said the T word, Terry Gross. Uh huh. Um, <laughs> there is, and, and you are of the NPR, you know, universe. Uh, there is such a distinct difference, you know, hearing you in NPR uh -huh. versus hearing you. Uh, if I may, I'm, I'm going to kind of uh, expose some biases that will not surprise anyone listening to this podcast. Uh, talking on your podcast like a freaking normal human being yeah. who's actually excited about things yeah. and, and is like markedly alive yeah. as opposed to NPR where you have to stop and wonder are they quiet because they just died? Yeah. Or, is this like, it? Did it so just silent? happen? Uh, and Did we so, just hear that on radio? First of all, I, I wonder if there's a switch that goes on in your mind when you go into nerdette mode but also 
when you do know dad, don't you wish that like all of radio was just cheerful and like full of life yeah, and just for enthusiastic? Sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, I feel like it's a it's a slow track towards world domination, you know? And we're working <laughs> on it. I mean, it's such a fascinating combination of jobs that I have because I read the news on Saturday mornings on WBEZ and then I have this podcast that's just like super fun and cursy and I get to talk about whatever I want. It's They're very different. I like to think that I bring some of myself to anchoring on the radio. Like I'd like to think that someone would hear that and think like, oh, this news person kind of sounds like she might be a person. But I mean, Nerdette is definitely where I get to like have fun for sure. Can you give us an example of like how you would talk on both? (laughs) Oh God, that's such a great question. Um, I mean, like, it's 67 degrees at 3.04. Good afternoon. I'm Greta Johnson with WBEZ News. <laughs> Chicago right. Mayor Lori Lightfoot this afternoon. You know, like, it's just like, you know. She just said to... shivers through the yeah. entire audience. <laughs> Everyone's like, it's Saturday? Oh, my God. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, sometimes, I, like, Nerdette is, like, almost borderline manic, right? Where it's just like, oh, my God, Booksmart, you guys, it's so fucking good. You're going to love it. It's 3.05. Um. <laughs> now, you also, you, a lot of your episodes do revolve around science. And yeah. some of your funding comes from foundation. Yeah, we actually w- this year just got a grant from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation to cover science. Right, to cover science. Wow. So, Was that in the DNA of the show from the start? Or is that something where you've like stepped it up thinking that's really important to, to get more science coverage into it? I think it? that was always part of the original DNA of the show. I mean, we definitely started with pop culture, but I think it was sort of it's an obvious extension of like where are women underrepresented and where can we have interesting conversations with women in different career fields that might not have a lot of women in them without just being like, so what's it like to be a lady in science? You know, like I like to think that Nerdette embraces nuance a little more than that, where like we'll speak to, you know, a female astrophysicist or something, but we won't just be like, so you're a lady, is that weird? You know? A lady in science sounds like a great name for like a 1912 musical. Right, exactly, (laughs) yeah. And actually, since we got our Sloan grant, all of the scientists we've spoken to are women. Um, Is that by design? Yeah. Yeah, we actually, we did talk to Bill Nye also, but technically he's not a scientist, he's just a science guy. So it's... (laughs) (laughs) For people here who have not listen to Nerdette. What is one that you think people should start with? What's like one of your favorite episodes? Oh, that's such a hard question. Often what I answer this with is a conversation we had with a woman named Batsheva Marcus. Do you guys know Batsheva? Oh, do we ever. (laughs) We know from Batsheva. (laughs) She has been a guest host on Unorthodox. Oh, that's awesome. So Batsheva is an Orthodox Jewish sex therapist which means that she works in a very intense community, but is like the person who talks to the rabbi about like, can this couple introduce a vibrator into their sex lives? And so she talks about how like often she'll speak to women who have literally, like they don't know what an orgasm is. They've never had any vocabulary around like arousal or any of that super weird stuff. And so she tries to figure out like how to have conversations with women in this, you know, world that often is considered to not be super feminist around how to empower themselves. And I just thought it was really fascinating. I mean, I, I had interviewed her just a couple of weeks after I had done a news story on a group of pro-choice Catholics, which was another sort of like just thing you don't really, like normally when you think of Catholics, you think of pro-life because that's kind of a big part of the Catholic faith. 
And my first thought was like, well, why don't you just leave the church? You know, like if you don't agree with like this major tenant of this thing, like you can just go, you don't have to stay here. And one of the women there was like, no, the whole, like this is mine, I own this too. And I should be allowed to have a say in how it changes over time. And so I'm not leaving. And it's something that what Bat Sheva said really resonated with me too. And I just thought, like it just really changed how I kind of think of like what how you change things, right? And like, should you leave or should you like actually stay and stick it out because that's when you can really make a difference. I also imagine the idea of like change from within is something right. that is coming up with these right. female scientists as well. Sure. Like they're not leaving science because there's not right. a lot of women yeah, in Yeah, or like, cause it was awkward and hard that one time. Yeah, you do it. In your newsletter, in your weekly newsletter, yeah. you suggest to all your subscribers a, a weekly thing to watch, a thing to read, and a thing to eat. Yeah, yeah. So for those people here who might not be subscribers yet, because uh -huh. everyone is a subscriber someday. Yes, love that. What would you suggest they read, watch, Ooh, and eat? that's so fun. I like to think of the newsletter as our introvert's guide to the good life, because it's all stuff you can just do at home. Are you an introvert? On your own. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, let's see, something to read. Okay, so I've talked about this one a lot lately, but it's just so good. It's this book called Evie Drake Starts Over. It just came out on Tuesday. It's by a woman named Linda Holmes, who hosts a podcast called Pop Culture Happy Hour. She's like NPR's pop culture. Mark is literally taking notes. I know. I love that. That's and you great. guys can listen to the latest episode of Nerdette yes. where she is interviewed. Yes. Yeah. I interviewed Linda about the book. Partly what I love. I mean, the book itself is great. It's like the perfect summer read. Um, but Linda also like this is her first book and she's 48, which I think is so cool. She's like got this super successful podcasting career, but she was like, you know, I've always thought of myself as a writer. I'm finally going to write that book. And so a lot of the conversation we had with her was about how it's never too late to change your life, especially when it comes to like the creative things that you do, which I just think is like such an awesome message, right? So that's what to read. So that's what to read. <laughs> um, let's see what to watch. Uh, Fleabag, obviously, right? So good. Uh, and then what to eat? What did I eat today? Oh, I had a really nice, it was like pasta with tomatoes sauteed in garlic oil and homemade pesto, mm. which is such a nice summery meal. It's like not too heavy, it's delicious. You can keep the pesto in the freezer, it's easy. I feel yeah. like our newsletter should just add what to eat each week. <laughs> like, we don't care what you read it's or watch. It's just our entire newsletter. Yeah. To basically be just like, eat this, eat this. Yeah, yes. it's good. So before we get to your question, your Gentile of the Week question. Yeah, which is related yes. to what to Which is related. Yeah. I did want to find out, do we have any audience questions? Do we have any Nerdette super fans in this room? Yeah. Oh, we do. Go, go ahead. Speak up. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. So just to repeat, what's your latest knitting project? Uh -huh. And have you heard about Ravelry.com? I love Ravelry. I'm pretty sure I'm on Ravelry as Greta with three A's. Greta, if you want to friend me. Uh, right what now. Because now I want to be on it too. So what is it? Greta. No, the Ravelry. Oh, Ravelry. <laughs> oh, right, 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 right. Uh, Ravelry is like a knitting social networking website. It's really cool, you Mark, guys. I think you and I really. I, I think we need Are you to taking do that. notes? Write that down too. <laughs> Um, but Ravelry is also awesome because you can like look up other patterns. You can like get patterns for knitting projects, but then you can also be like, I'm curious about this hat. How does it look in a lighter color than the pattern has? And you can like look at everybody who's ever made that project. 
So here's it's a, pretty awesome. I have, I have a brief follow-up to that. Okay. Wait, and what are you working on right now? Right. Those parts. Can I, can I answer that first? Okay. I'm working on, people always ask me, it's a giant triangle. I feel like that's just the easiest way to describe it. I'm pretty sure the pattern is called Blanket Fort. I can't remember the name of the woman who made it. Um, but like in the pattern, she's posing with like wearing it over her head like a crazy person. And I was like, I want that in my life. I tend to be a very selfish knitter. I don't knit things for other people. I just make giant triangles that I can like wrap myself in. It's great, it's great. <laughs> the introvert thing, you know? What was your question? <laughs> this is an introvert question. I right? see so you describe yourself as an introvert and, and, and here you are shining, not just on this wonderful social uh, media for knitters, but, but on, on podcasting. And it seems to be these uh, all kinds of technological avenues that let people who wouldn't necessarily have a space uh, really find their passion and find their community. You grew up in Alaska. When you grew up in, in a small Alaska, I imagine, a town, small Alaska high school, did you imagine any of this would be possible? One day you would get to interview famous people and do the things that you love and really shine in this specific avenue? Man, that's such a great question. I mean, I think the answer is no. Like even finishing college, like I was literally working at the campus NPR station and I didn't know what I was gonna do after school. I was like, I don't know, I'll figure it out. Um, but I mean, to that end, I also like never considered anything else. Like the only full-time jobs I've ever had have been in radio. Um, and in the end, I mean like, this is different than what we normally do, right, as, po as podcasters or in radio. Like, my work nightmare is that there are people in the studio with me and they won't stop talking. And I'm like, you know, like, normally we're just Mine in too, a room usually alone. usually there are two of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, see? Like, you know, normally my job, like, a bunch of people hear me at any given time, but I'm literally sitting alone in a room talking to myself, you know? Which, like, as far as being an introvert, it works out pretty well, right? Do you think the knitting triangle like if you wore it while you recorded it would like muffle do you oh, think oh i mean it would probably work really well for those like homemade studio situations where like you just have to record in your closet because you don't have anywhere else and so you need to put a blanket over you like that would probably work pretty well though a lot of it's lace knit which means it's not like super dense you know but if you wrapped it around enough times <laughs> sure any other audience questions Wow, is this even a Jewish audience? Oh. No, I don't have a, a question, I have a comment. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Are there any what? I don't say Oh, I have no idea. I don't follow the news. <laughs> Curtis no, Flowers Curtis is getting a new Flowers. trial. I was just gonna say Curtis Flowers is like the latest big podcast uh, news story, which is at the Supreme Court they they said he needs a new trial, right? Yeah, he needs a new trial. He won. And that's based essentially off the reporting of a podcast called In the Dark from American Public Media. Which so good. Heard it. Yeah. So it's good. Awesome. And like, talk about impact, right? I mean, like, as fun as it is to talk about Booksmart or whatever, like, those are shows that are like literally changing people's lives. I do. Our show, our show has impacted. We started a bagel war in Cleveland. Yeah. Oh, that's that's. That's, I don't mean to undermine the work, the good work you folks are we doing. We also started a deli war in Cleveland that we were in the middle of, wow. which was bad. People feel, we started a yes. war amongst our own listeners about which is more Jewish, saran wrap or aluminum foil. Oh, wow. Which was, yeah. still keeps me up at night that like the amount of vitriol on the Facebook page over that was so, it went so deep for people. Wait, was, so what is the answer to that? Oh, well, obvious. I mean, aluminum yeah, everyone, foil. Aluminum foil? Says half of them. 
What, let's but. do a vote. Let's do a vote. Or let's do like a cheering so that we can hear it on the radio. Okay. Who says, so the question is like, when you grew up, what was the, the vehicle for preserving leftovers, which are obviously a very important part of our culture? Um, was it saran wrap? Oh, okay. And now those of you who are correct and think it's aluminum foil? I noticed my sister is aluminum, team aluminum foil, so I don't, I don't think mom had any saran wrap game at all. So wait, what about like Tupperware? Oh, no, no, no. I, right? Is that just okay, a gender thing? Yeah. I have I'm just no gonna idea. Say it. I'm just gonna say it and then I'm gonna get angry mail if we put this in the air, like don't use terms like Jewish and Goyish and don't essentialize, but whatever. Tupperware to me is where like Midwesterners store casserole filled yeah. with like. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If I like, may, for that question alone, you've been upgraded to Jew of the month, to Gentile of the month. <laughs> the casserole, wait, I wasn't done yet. It's casserole with like pork and jello both in it. Yeah, don't worry about and it. And then they watch Lawrence Welk and then they take a trip in a camper. It's like there's nothing more Gentile than Tupperware. Yeah. I studied abroad in France for a semester in college, and my host mother called it Tupperware, and it took me forever <laughs> to figure out what she was talking about. I was like, oh, Tupperware. So Greta, you came with a food question for us. For new listeners, our Gentile of the week or month always gets to come <laughs> at, to ask a question that they've always wondered about Jews or Judaism, everything's fair game. Yeah, I mean, as a person who really loves eating good foods, what are some of your favorite like culturally Jewish foods? This really calls us Is out this here. Like, this sounds like it might get heated. So I, did, for, I thought yeah. it would be non-contentious. Let me just, I'm gonna start since I have the least interesting answer. Okay. Okay, as the non-foodie here, as the person raised on a steady diet of Friendly's restaurants and Domino's pizza. Nice. Or what's We're known as Springfield <laughs> Oat Cuisine. Uh-huh. Um, we published a book about this that Stephanie helped edit called The nice. 100 Most Jewish Foods. And to me, all I can think about is my grandfather's preference for, as an as a after-dinner dessert treat, Goldenberg's peanut chews. Which, if you're from greater Philadelphia, they're everywhere. It's like Tasty Cakes and Goldenberg's peanut chews. Nobody, right, there's five of you who feel that very deeply. <laughs> yeah, yes. I don't think I made it. And the rest of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But yeah. we did when and we Josh pop- is waving his hand. Goldenberg. Goldenberg's oh, wow. the best. Oh, now okay. you're here, Josh. <laughs> But what do you guys got? So, the funny thing is, it's very regional, right? Like, the Goldenbergs is specific. Like, we got letters. We, the book was 100 most, the, the 100 most Jewish foods. It's not the best. It's, like, the most. It's just the most. Some and so people were like, why isn't Goldenbergs in there? And we're like, that's a really good point. Like, the, the whole point, the subtitle is a highly debatable list. And everyone has basically just been yelling at us since it published, which is kind of the point we no, asked for. that's how you it. know you're making it in the world, I think. I feel very strongly towards, like, the deli pickle like I'm very I'm into that like the dill versus the sour like I'm into that debate I'm really deep into it I want I like I like people getting mad about pickles like that to me is real real Jewishness Uh in uh, keeping with it with my role in the show I'll begin by saying which food I consider absolutely not Jewish (laughs) uh, and the least Jewish food in the world and I've argued this before is a bagel uh, which is something that we have now bequeathed to the rest of America if you could get something at the airport in Memphis uh, it is no longer ours. It belongs to the world now. And, and I'm happy. And I think, you know, the Gentiles could do whatever they want with it, including slice it like bread, which is what apparently they do oh, in yeah. Panera. And I, I support that. Um, <laughs> the food that I love most uh, is cholent, uh, which is 
thank you for this. Wow, big trolling crowd. It is Will a, you explain an, what it is? An amazing uh, stew that uh, arrives from Eastern Europe uh, where Orthodox Jews uh, could not cook during uh, the Sabbath, and so they uh, put everything that they could find, uh, basically potatoes and meat and beans and barley, whatever, rice, uh, sometimes eggs, into a pot, and then they just left it there for any time between 24 and 72 hours. So, but so like over cook. a flame, a low not flame, that right? kind of a low flame, flame cooking oh, okay. slowly. Good. And this is your, your Shabbos treat. And if you're very lucky, you find in it the real treasure, the definitive food of the Jewish people, the kishka, uh, <laughs> which is literally stuffed intestine, which I love. Great, that's lovely. <laughs> and, and this is why I'm fat. <laughs> Okay, can you guys maybe like yell some Jewish foods out that you like? Halva. Oh, halva. Halva. What, what was that? that? Oh, blintzes. Yeah. Blintzes. Whoa. What? Leftovers. <laughs> I love matzah this. Matzah Have you had fried matzah? Have you had matzah brai? Yes. Yes. By the way, this is what my like your nightmare is being in a studio with people. My nightmare is like having Jewish people yell foods at me. <laughs> right? <laughs> Which is weird because I asked for I'm it. Sorry. So. So, Greta, if people want to find your work, yes. how, what's the best way to send them to it? Subscribe to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. Just go to, like, that podcast app or yeah, Stitcher whatever, or... Yeah, whatever, however you like your podcasts. And if you're the sort of person who would rather, like, click play on a web browser, you can totally do that, too. Just go to wbeasy.org slash Nerdette. Awesome. Greta, thank you for being our Gentile thank of the Century. Thank you. That was Gentile of the Week, Greta Johnson, from our Chicago Live Show a couple weeks ago. Her podcast is Nerdette. Stephanie, do you have a Mazel Tov this week? I have a collective Mazel Tov from all of us to superfan Joanna Lieberman. She's a former colleague of our super producer, Sarah Fredman Ader, and she's doing great work for the Jewish community. We just wanted to say, hey, Joanna. Hey, I Joanna, see you. Lieber Joanna Lieberman. Thank you. I have a Mazel Tov to Barb Feig. She is the newly hired executive director of the Tree of Life or La Simcha Congregation in Pittsburgh. You might have heard of the Tree of Life Congregation in Pittsburgh. Uh, it's the one that was the victim of that horrible attack back in uh, last October. Uh, there are three congregations housed within the building, and Barb is going to be the executive director of the largest of those congregations and the one that owns the building, Tree of Life or La Simcha. And Barb was on our Pittsburgh episode. That's right. She was amazing, and it was so fun to meet her. And I have to say, I recently got followed by Tree of Life on Instagram and Twitter. So, like, someone's doing their social media. Like, things are happening there. Things are happening, and uh, I see it all the time in my in my reporting. And it, Barb has been uh, a terrific person for me to to get to know and to talk with. And I think she's going to be a great executive director. And I also want to give a Mazel Tov to uh, to Rabbi Neil Amswich, who was on our Jews Across America episode. I have continued to listen to his podcast, Soul Searching, and I want to say. Uh, we didn't get into his podcasting life when we were talking about Star Wars and board games and Santa Fe sunsets. But Rabbi Neil has a really special podcast going, uh, so people should check out Soul Searching by Rabbi Neil M. Switch. And I think we have some more Mazel Tovs. In fact, it's time to play some of the Mazel Tovs that came to us from the audience at that Chicago live show. The live shows, actually my favorite part of the live shows is often the end when people give their Mazel Tovs. They're, they're so sweet and special and Hamish. And we are delighted to present a sampler of Chicagoland Mazel Tovs. Have a listen. Those of you who are fans know that it's time to do the Mazel Tovs. If you want to do a Mazel Tov, you have five seconds for your Mazel Tov at most. 
My name is Alan Paris. Uh, mazel tov to Raya Ben-Shir, my wife, on uh, our 42nd anniversary today. Oh. Woo! Woo! My name is Ilana Matthews, and this is a consolation mazel tov to my friend Beth Koplovich, who really, really wanted to be here. Yes, right? I love Beth. Mark, you love Beth, yes. Yeah. Um, we all, many of us love, many of us in Madison, Wisconsin, love Beth, and she desperately wanted to be here. Woo! But um, she is professional Jewing it up um, at the Center for Israel Education Conference in Atlanta. So, Mazel Tov. Thanks, Beth. Mazel Tov, Beth, for all the hard work you do with the Kinder, the Kinderlach. Hi, my name is Ilana Pentelnik. Um, I want to wish a model to have to my parents, Julie and Stephen Pentelnik, on 41 years of marriage yesterday. Yeah. It's wedding season, guys. That's very Chicago of them, staying married. <laughs> Is it their first marriage? <laughs> it's like, no, it's their fourth. <laughs> my name is Rachel Kamen. I'm a third-generation life member of Hadassah. Woo! I'm here with But my are you a third-generation unorthodox listener is really the question. <laughs> Almost. I'm here with my posse from North Suburban Synagogue Bethel in Highland Park. And I want to give a happy birthday to my dear friend Amy Gers in Greensboro, North Carolina, who introduced me to Unorthodox four years ago, and I've been a dedicated fan ever since. Yes, yeah, Amy Gers is a real, a real fan. We yeah. like her. She was an early adopter. Hi, my name is Arielle Silverstein, and my mazel tov is to my grandparents. Grandma Marge and Grandpa Enoch on their 58th wedding anniversary. Whoa. Wow. Whoa. Hi, my name is Lori Sagarin, and um, I'm a fourth generation life member of Hadassah. Um, and I want to wish a mazel tov to my daughter, Eliana Sagarin, who introduced me to an Orthodox and was one of the um, letters of the week um, a couple of years ago and hosted Mark in Tel Aviv. And she just got engaged to her wonderful boyfriend, Tal Klein. Um, and they live in Tel Aviv. And I also want to wish a mazel tov to my dear friend, Vanessa Ehrlich. We were supposed to be at the live show with ARJE, and we couldn't be there because she was going through cancer treatment. And we are here tonight, yeah. and she is free of disease. Woo! My name is Emily Enti, and I want to wish a big mazel tov to my cousin Aviva, who's here with me tonight and just finished her PhD and is now officially Dr. Ariel Donjas. Friends, we always love getting your mail. Our address is unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Our voice mailbox is 914-570-4869. That's 914-570-4869. Before I give you the credits, friends, I encourage you to stick around after the credits to hear a very special song that was featured in Elisa Rosen's documentary about H. Allen Scott's conversion to Judaism, Latter-day Jew. A really sweet little bit of audio from that documentary coming to film festivals near you. We're going to be playing it right after the credits, which are... Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Would you please take 12 seconds and rate us on iTunes? It helps other people find us. We often come to you live to book us or advertise with us. Email producer Josh Cross, J-K-R-O-S-S at tabletmag.com. You need to wear or carry our stuff. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt. Purchase unorthodox swag. So good for the midsummer birthday, such as mine. Follow us on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast or on Twitter at Unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producer is Sarah Fredman-Ader and our editor is Melissa Campbell. 
Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media mashkiach is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemworks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Stephen Sachs of Otis Kodesh Shell Emmet Congregation in Delaware. We come to you from Argo Studios, which outraised Beto O'Rourke in the last quarter. Shalom, friends. I don't allow me share my life Tear him cold, you see me right I'm so cold, so cold As I make a shimony, he cries Achare, ki chlot ako Levado, yim lo chora I don't know how I'm gonna share my life Thank you for being a friend Travel down the road and back again Your heart is true, you're a pal and a confidant And if you threw a party The card attached would say thank you for being a friend.